everybody. So today our guest is Reverend, Reverend Luther Young. He is a sociologist and public theologian. Um, he is currently working toward his PhD at, the, at Ohio State University, and he is a pastoral leader at uh, the Woodland Christian Church. How are you doing today, Luther? I'm great. How about yourself, Maddie? Uh, I'm doing really well. I um, I heard from you, about you from a friend, and just some of the things that you had said were um, just brilliant. And I thought immediately, okay, he needs to come on the podcast. Um, so can you tell the can you tell the listeners a little bit about what you do on kind of a day to day basis, or just kind of how you um, are engaged with the um, with with the different intersectional needs of of allies and yeah absolutely so um primarily uh, i'm conducting research at um i'm conducting research on the interconnectedness between race gender sexuality and religion and in particular my work examines the causes and effects of um, homophobia and anti-LGBTQ um, views and attitudes in historically Black churches. Um, and so my work takes somewhat of a historical perspective, but is also empirical. Um, so I do, um, you know, I, I do interviews with people, um, surveys and those sorts of things to try to get a fuller understanding of um, what LGBTQ inclusion does look like, can look like, should look like um, in Black churches. Okay. And um, was there any particular impetus for you beginning this work? For sure. Um, so a number of years ago, I guess it wasn't that long ago, um, a few years ago when I was in seminary at uh, Vanderbilt Divinity School, I um, started seminary with the intention of going into um, congregational ministry. Um, I've never desired to be a senior pastor and I still don't really, <laughs> but um, I knew that I was gonna be working in the church, um, likely in music ministry, which is what I had been doing, or um, youth and young adult ministry is something else that um, I'm incredibly passionate about. Um, but my plan was to finish seminary and to you know, keep working in that arena things changed a little bit um, for a couple of reasons. First, uh, while I was in seminary, um, I came out, um, I guess, and when it wasn't really a secret, but I just made this public announcement. I was like, yeah, in case you didn't know, <laughs> uh, I'm not straight. And that um, was a mixed bag um, of, of emotions for me. It was great. There, I got a lot of support um, from a lot of people. Um, but I did get a lot of pushback. Um, and in particular, the church that I was serving at the time, um, the short version of it is that they were not ready to have an openly queer um, clergy on staff there. I mean, so I ended up leaving that particular congregation um, and it was, it was difficult. And um, I had to do a lot of uh, deep thinking and healing work and therapy <laughs> to... Yeah. Um, figure out what my next steps would be. I, I honestly wasn't sure if ministry was going to be it for me. Um, had a, a nice frank conversation uh, with God about, you know, hey, why are you calling me to do this if people obviously don't want me to be here? Um, 
Like, why are you setting me up for this impossible task? It seems like. Um, but yeah, that was a, an interesting time. It was a difficult time. But in that, I also realized that the kind of ministry that I wanted to do um, was to address these issues of racial injustice um, and, and LGBTQ inclusion in churches. Okay. Um, and so when I began to look for resources, I was like, all right, what's out there? This, I need to read some books and figure out how to do this work. I realized there wasn't a lot out there. Um, there wasn't a lot on this subject. Um, there were a few kind of staple um, pieces, a few, you know, good books and a couple of good articles, but that was it. And, you know, those were mostly descriptive, right, of, oh, here are some of the problems that we see. But there was no sort of handbook or guidebook for how to do this type of work. And so um, I thought, well, I guess I got to keep going to school and, and try to answer some of these questions. Um, and that um, began the impetus for my sociological work, um, trying to really dig into these questions and to really get an accurate picture of what's going on um, in our churches. And if, uh, if you could put, you know, if you could put it into kind of one sentence, how significantly has your views on this, this material changed since beginning to now? I feel like my views change every other week. <laughs> um, you know, with, with more research and more reading and more data, and the more I talk to people and the more I do research, it's, it's um, and I don't know if changing is the right word. It's not like a complete shift, or I thought this two weeks ago and now I think this, but it continues to evolve as um, I start to get a more full understanding um, of what's happening now and what has happened over the past, you know, 150, 200 years. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that we're going to come back to regularly, it's something that we've both already mentioned, um, intersectionality. Can you give um, just a, a plain English definition of intersectionality for people that may not understand that word? Absolutely. So the term intersectionality um, is attributed to um, Kimberly Crenshaw back in the late 80s, um, who kind of popular, you know, coined the term, although um, Crenshaw was building on the work of Black women long before her, um, Judith Butler, Alice Walker, you know, all these other folks, they had already been kind of dealing with this. But Kimberly Crenshaw in the late 80s is where we kind of get this term. And intersectionality essentially um, describes how um, multiple marginalized identities intersect in such a way that it creates unique experiences for those individuals. Um, and so in particular, when this term was popularized um, by Kimberly Crenshaw, she was looking specifically at Black women and saying that Black women had experiences that were unique from white women, but were also unique from Black people of other genders, so Black men and Black people of other gender identities. And so what's important to understand about intersectionality, and this is, I think, where um, quite a few folks, even folks who um, know intersectionality or know of it, where they get tripped up, is that intersectionality is not about adding oppressions together. So it's not that Black women are oppressed because they're Black, so they have that, and then you add on um, 
you know, their oppression for being women and you just add it together and then you have black women's experiences. What Kimberly Crenshaw is telling us is that no, it's not that simple. They, it's not that you can just add the racism and sexism together and get black women's oppression, but that it's going to be radically different. It's not even about adding them together. It's just that they have, a, have an experience that is completely unique from these other identities. Um, and so intersectionality has now been expanded to include other identities too, such as sexual orientation, ability, um, uh, wealth and class, um, education level, like all these other identities intersect in a way um, that if you have multiple marginalized identities or multiple oppressed identities, um, your experience in life is just radically different from other people. Yeah, um, one of the things that I, I really appreciate is you said ability, um, and if anybody uh, isn't aware of this, a lot of times whenever we're talking about marginalized people, disabled people are left off that list. Um, so, you know, some of the things that you have to be concerned about, if you if you get government funding because of your your disability, you can only have, I think it's like $2,000 in your bank account or else they'll completely remove the funding from you. You know, it's just, it's a fight every day. I've done a lot of work with people that have disabilities, um, especially neurological disabilities. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's something that's often left off the, the list of, of disenfranchised people. And I'm really glad that, um, you know, you, you mentioned that. And I also wanted to say, just as an illustration, so I took gender law, um, I'm in law school, so I took gender law last year. And one of the things that kind of opened my eyes to where I was deficient in understanding intersectionality was um, black women specifically have an extremely hard time explaining to judges that they were fired or not, um, not given a promotion or demoted or not given a raise because they are black women, because judges will look at the employment and say, well, they have black men and they have white women. So clearly this person's not being discriminated against. And then you can go a step further. So um, if there are two black women in, in a, you know, in any area and they perform their gender differently, if they perform their race differently, that can also be an intersectional issue because um, if one of them wants to um, dress more masculine and the other one dresses more feminine, that person that's dressing more masculine may get more scrutiny because she's not performing her gender the way the other women in the office are. So anyway, I find this discussion to be really fascinating and I obviously have a lot to learn about intersectionality, but I'm, I, that's why you're here because you, you are the person to talk to about this. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you bringing that up too, right? Because, you know, Kimberly Crenshaw is a lawyer and um, her original kind of explanation of this involved discrimination in the workplace. And it, what was so fascinating was that these Black women couldn't lodge a claim because they said, essentially, you had to pick one, right? You, you had to argue discrimination on the basis of race, or you had to argue discrimination on the basis of sex, but you cannot argue that you're being discriminated against for being a black woman. Um, that was just not allowed. They were saying like the, the law doesn't allow for that. And that was um, kind of what that initial article mapping the margins was 
um, designed to say. It's like, no, you can't just, it's not about just picking one identity. These things intersect in a way to where it is the combination um, of being a both black and a woman right um, that creates this oppression yeah yeah i i read several um articles written by or about uh crenshaw and just the way it was it was much more forward thinking than i expected um coming from that time not not to i mean the 70s were very revolutionary so like going into the 80s and 90s it makes sense that a a concept of intersectionality would pick up, you know, where, and like you said, she got it from many Black women who had already started expressing these frustrations. But um, I I wanted to uh, ask you just kind of as a blanket question, and we can go into more detail, where did the notion come from that Black people, and more specifically Black churches, are particularly homophobic? <sighs> that is a good question. Um, so I think it comes from a number of things. There is this assumption that um, communities of color and in particular black people and their faith communities are not, or they're, they're not accepting or less accepting of LGBTQ people. There is some truth to that, right? So if we look at the, um, you know, the numbers, if we look at um, national surveys of Black people, of Black Christians, of Black churchgoers, we will see that compared to their white counterparts, Black people and Black churchgoers tend to be less accepting of LGBTQ people. Um, and that in years past, that gap used to be incredibly wide, right? Um, now, in recent years, that gap is narrowing as more and more people across racial lines, across um, ethnic divisions are becoming more um, accepting of LGBTQ people. But by and large, um, the level of acceptance among Black people and Black Christians um, is... Uh, substantially less than that of white folks. Um, but just looking at those numbers alone, I don't think paints an accurate picture. Um, and then too, we have the experiences of, of Black queer people um, who have been saying throughout history that, hey, you know, my church, yeah, they're definitely not <laughs> affirming of, of non-heterosexual identities. They're not affirming of transgender identities. Right. Um, I think, sorry, I don't mean it mm -hmm. to interrupt. I, I think Marsha P. Johnson, who, for those that don't know, is, um, I, I believe we would call her a transgender woman at this time. Um, apparently, she did live part-time as a man, but I think that was probably more for safety and convenience sake. But Marsha P. Johnson was a very prolific civil rights activist. She was a transgender woman, and um, she spoke uh, occasionally at least about church discrimination um but and i think it's presumed that she would have gone to a black church however i don't think that she specifically says a black or white church so anyway i just wanted to kind of jump in there i i don't know much about this topic so every now and then whenever i hear something that um, that I do know, I just, um, I may get excited and jump in on you. So I apologize. <laughs> no, absolutely. 
Yeah, and you bring up a really good um, a really good point, and it's I would say so. I'm actually working on this now, um, so it, it's not completely fully formed. Um, I'm working on a uh, paper slash project article, whatever. I don't know what it's going to end up being. Um, on kind of tracing the history of homophobia in the Black church, if you will, um, since the civil rights movement. Okay. And what I'm finding is for a while, for quite a while, while the Black church wasn't accepting or affirm, well, while the Black church wasn't affirming of LGBTQ people, right, they were to some degree tolerant. Okay. And so, um, and, I, and I, I make that distinction from being just like overtly homophobic, right? right? Um, gay people have been in the black church forever um, and it wasn't really an issue, but there was this sort of like don't ask, don't tell policy, right? Like we're, you know, we're not gonna celebrate your queerness, but I mean, you're here, of course, you know, you can sing in the choir and, you know, you can serve and, you know, you can come and it's fine, but, you know, you keep quiet about it, we'll keep quiet about it. Yeah. Um, and there would be people that, who were known to be non-heterosexual um, in, and I'm thinking like, you know, in local black churches, but even like on a national scale, I'm thinking about, you know, nationally renowned um, pastors and ministers who were either known to be um, gay or queer or at the very least kind of su suspected where everybody's like, mm, yeah, they're probably, um, but no one cared as much um, as long as it stayed quiet. I would argue that this concerted effort in the bl Black church um, toward being more overtly homophobic comes about in the late 80s to early 90s. There's a book by... Um, I believe it's Anthony Stafford, Homophobia in the Black Church, um, that kind of talks about this, how you, you start to get this shift when the Black Church becomes a little bit more invested in being more overtly homophobic. And there are a couple of things that are happening at this time. So you have the HIV AIDS epidemic, um, which for a while, the Black community and the Black church kind of stayed out of because that's a white people thing, right? So, you know, gay white men are dying of this disease and, you know, um, uh, uh, intravenous drug users are, you know, so they're like, that. that's that's that problem over there. We don't really have to get involved. Right. But when they start to notice that, hey, this this thing is is killing Black folks, that we, we kind of have to get involved in this now. And um, Matt, the visibility of Magic Johnson played a huge part in that because we have yeah, this presumed straight black family man you know he got it was like okay well it could be it could happen to anybody um and so but with that you have um the hiv aids epidemic but then also it's in the 90s to where you get this concerted effort from the uh, queer community around gay marriage um and so it can be argued that a lot of conservative um, lawmakers forged partnerships with Black churches, Black clergy in particular, to say, hey, um, this is something that we need to join together and fight against. And so um, white conservatives and Black conservatives kind of joined forces 
um, to say, hey, we may not agree on a lot, but we can agree that, you know, those gays aren't people that we want, you know, um, to get to a little, to, to get too much power or to have, you know, all these things that they're wanting. Because look, it's going to destroy your communities. And so then, you know, I argue the Black church started to really dive into this whole, you know, notion of we got to preserve the Black family and, you know, uh, queer people are destroying our families. And it's this rhetoric that's kind of um, used across the board, but that I, I would argue the Black church really started to buy into that um, in the late 80s and throughout the 90s. Um, I'll stop there. I feel like I'm rambling, but there. It, then it changed again when Obama got elected, but we'll get there. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, just for, for the record, you could ramble as long as you want, because that was really interesting and I was learning things. Um, so, so I'm happy to hear uh, if that's you rambling, then um, I, I can listen to it all day. Um, are there and this can be, um, this question I think is probably best set in the 80s. Um, are there any particular struggles that the Black community or the Black churches were going through at that time that the white community was not going through? Um, and if so, did that have any part in why they were so accepting of this like collaborative process? Yeah. Oh, gosh. So I feel like we have to go even further back in history to start to answer that. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> so, I mean, it, and I think it's important um, whenever we're having any of these conversations for people to understand, like, why the Black church exists in the first place. Um, and so many people may not know the story of Richard Allen and Absalom Jones. Okay. Um, these were two... Um, Oh gosh, I don't want to say this incorrectly. I I can't remember if they were both enslaved or if they were free by this point. But in the 1800s, you have these these men who were kind of the religious leaders of their of their community of enslaved people, um, and they were the short version is they were a part. They were you know at this church, this white church, and you know back in those times. Um, enslaved people and even free Africans, um, you know, they had to sit in the in the back of the church or they had to sit in the balcony. They had, you know, kind of designated places where they could be. They weren't allowed to kind of mingle with the white people. Um, and so they were sitting in their kind of designated place and they were kneeling to pray. But um, apparently um, some white congregants wanted to, they wanted that spot where they were. Um, and they told them to get up. And so um, Absalom Jones and Richard Allen were like, well, can we at least finish our prayers? Um, they were like, no, you know, you need to get up now. And so he leads um, this group of African people just out of the church. And that is um, the start of not necessarily the Black church, because the Black church had kind of been around throughout slavery. Um, and you have prayer houses in the South and all of these other things where Black people would get together and have their own uh, worship services. But that um, incident with Richard Allen and Absalom Jones is what started the first Black denomination, the African okay. Methodist Episcopal Church. I um, mean, so they left and formed their own denomination as that, and that is the start of the kind of Black church as an institution, like having its own um, denominations and other denominations started to follow after that. And so the Black church is born out of, um, it's, it's, it's born out of a response to racism, right? Yeah. You know, not having a place to worship um, within the white churches that existed. And so like there, there became this need 
to create their own spaces. Um, and so that is an important thing to note. Now may it is I, also, yeah. I'm sorry, sure. may I just jump in? And I, so one thing that I wanna make very clear to the viewers is, um, you know, and I, I'm temporarily setting aside the experience of queer black people. Um, I am going to try not to make a lot of comparisons between the struggles of queer people generally and black people generally. But I do find that one thing that's interesting is, you know, queer ministries and everything really were born out of the exact same issue. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I did a paper that w went into a lot of detail about, um, well, it's boring, but, but um, the Vordire process, meaning uh, selecting jury members and how that was initially hard for uh, members of the black community, well, really just communities of color, um, and how the same tactics are being used now against queer people. So, uh, you know, I did a lot of research on on the feelings of people generally comparing the two struggles. And a lot of people think that it's appropriate, but a lot of people think that it's not. So I try not to talk about it as the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I just, I would like to point out if it's okay with you, just kind of whenever they, uh, whenever they mirror one another. Oh, absolutely. Yes, that is actually a very important point um, that will come up once we get to the 90s to the early 2000s. Okay. Um, but yes, yes, you are right. You are right on it. Um, and, you know, speaking of kind of queerness um, and um, throughout kind of the history of um, Black people and members of the African diaspora in the U.S., um, so you have that history of the church, but then you have this, this um, other history and tandem of sexuality among um, Black people. And so throughout slavery, um, content warning, just, you know, we're going to talk about a little bit of violence and trauma and abuse for listeners. Um, throughout slavery, um, of course, Black people were subjected to physical violence, sexual violence, um, sexual assault. Um, and that also included, and so we kind of know about um, African women being um, um, sexually violated, but it's also important to note too that um, African men were also raped yes. um, throughout slavery. And for Black people throughout history and even today, same gender relations kind of, in it, it brings up that memory of um, sexual assault, and particularly for, um, and, and that's kind of why um, when you describe like homosexuality in the Black church, if you will, the emphasis is always kind of on gay men, like that's right. always the, almost the immediate focus, because it uh, brings up these images of Black men being raped by white slave masters, yeah. um, and so there is, there is this thought among a lot of um, black people, not even not just in the U.S., but in parts of um, the African diaspora and even in Africa, that homosexuality is a tool of colonization that has been um, imposed upon black people. And so there are people who believe that, like you know, homosexuality didn't exist in Africa. Like there's no, there weren't gay people in Africa, mm. not until white people got there. Um, and you know, this is this thing, this perversion, quote unquote, that's being put um, into our communities by white people. Interesting. Um, and so like that history has 
contributes to a lot of these views that we're seeing too. And so it's not even just, you know, this disagreement with um, same gender relationships, but also to some black people to be gay is to be anti-black or to be not black. Like, you know, queerness is anti-blackness. Um, and so that's also kind of important to consider as, we, as we're looking at um, these topics of sexuality in the black church. Yeah, so I, this makes me think of um, the, the term two-spirit. I, mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with this. So mm -hmm. for anybody that's not uh, a, I believe it was coined in the 90s. I could be wrong about that, but there, there was a um, kind of an understanding in Native American culture, well, some Native American cultures, not all of them, where people were effectively trans or something bordering on a, a divergence from the binary, you know, gender spectrum. So in the, in the 90s, I believe people kind of coined that, that mentality, that third gender as two-spirit. Um, some people called it third, third spirit also. Um, I'm, so I'm Native American. Uh, my family is registered with the Wyandotte Bureau. And um, I don't believe that my tribe ever had anything like that. But um, consequentially, whenever, whenever the Native American tribes that didn't have that kind of understanding started getting frustrated with the Native American tribes that were more, we'll call it progressive when it came to gender, there was a lot of like infighting that happened. And anyway, it just, it makes me think that this is a multinational, multi-ethnical, uh, yeah, ethnical issue that, you know, we really got to kind of see it happen in almost every facet of American history. That's really, it's interesting. Obviously it's terrible because it caused a lot of pain for a lot of people, but it, it is fascinating. Um, did, whenever you read these, like whenever you're reading through the history of these things, do you ever just kind of catch yourself just like thinking, oh my goodness, this is, this is too much for me right now. I got to put this book down. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. For, I think, especially when I first started out my research, you know, I was so excited. I was like, yeah, these are all these problems I need to address. But then I would read so many stories of violence and trauma and abandonment and um, exile. And I was just like, man, this is, this is heavy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I need, uh, can I, you know, get some rainbows or something? Let me go watch some <laughs> cartoons or something. Like I need a few minutes of joy in my life because it, it can, it can get a bit heavy and it can get dark, you know, really dark, really fast. Yeah. Well, speaking of rainbows, um, this is a terrible segue. I did, I went to a really good podcast school, as I've said before, um, but segues were not my forte. Um, <laughs> so that makes me think about, um, about the Bible. And so I was wondering, can you give us a, an idea of how the Bible was used specifically in the Black church or the Black community to justify homophobia? Yeah, I think for, uh, this is where it gets a little um, interesting, but I think for the most part, um, this is where it starts to get interesting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Yeah, everything else we've talked about is, uh, no, um, but I think, so I think by and large, the Black church has used and, and weaponized the Bible similar in similar ways um, that 
you know, their conservative white counterparts have. You know, you have those quote unquote clobber passages, yeah. those, you know, six or so scriptures that most people commonly point to to say, you know, there it is. You have, you know, there it is. The Bible says being, being gay or being trans is wrong. The complicated thing though, is that the black church and black people have had such an interesting relationship with the Bible, right? Because this is the same book that is said, um, that was used by white people to say, um, you know, slaves obey your masters. Well, it's in the Bible. So there you have it. Um, It's the same. um, And so black folks had to kind of grapple with that and figure out like, okay, you know, we've we've got to put on our, um, um, how are we going to interpret this? They had to come up with a way to interpret this in a way that makes sense for them. Um, and instead, um, rather than focusing on those passages, they chose to view God as the liberator, the supreme liberator of justice, you know, the Exodus narrative um, being um, the story of um, the children of Israel being brought out of slavery in Egypt. Um, yeah. That passage or that, that story is, was the foundation for um, the black church um, abolition, the civil rights movement, um, hence the, the reason Harriet Tubman was nicknamed Black Moses, right? That right. whole story was just instrumental. I mean, that became the focus of the Black church. It was all about liberation, freedom. God is on our side and God is leading us out of this, um, this Egypt, if you will, of slavery and racism and oppression. But then it becomes interesting when the Black church does not afford that same kind of liberationist view when it came, I mean, initially they didn't offer it that same perspective when it came to women, right? Because sure. then we have the passages that, you know, women should be silent and I permit not a woman, a woman to have rule over a man. You know, this is Paul in the New Testament. Um, and, you know, um, women should be, should listen with all quiet submission and ask their husbands if they have any questions, but be quiet. Um, and the Black church adopted a lot of that um, rhetoric, too. Um, and the same kind of conservative views concerning sexuality um, and anti-LGBTQ um, sentiments. And so it's been an interesting journey for the Black church, especially over the past few decades, to really wrestle with that. And so you, you see now a lot more Black churches that do offer positions of leadership for women, who, that do allow women to be ordained. And, um, and so it's, 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 it's just, yeah, interesting is the word that I keep coming back to of, of how the Black church we've been kind of grappling with. Well, we are a church of liberation. That's what we're founded on. But how wide and how liberative right. can we be? <laughs> Uh, yeah that's really fascinating um and that's that brings up a lot of questions of intersectionality that I just I had never considered so whenever I think about why churches generally but for the point of this podcast uh why the black church has become more um affirming of women of queer people things like that. And that's not to say that there's like overwhelming support, but just the fact that it exists. Um, I, I just have to think, you know, women and especially black women really laid the groundwork for queer people to have an argument 
Um, and that that's the same in law for anybody that doesn't know. The reason that I have my um, my constitutional right to to work in the United States is because a, a woman said, hey, I should be able to dress however I want to. And so the, the notion that you can, you can um, fire somebody based on their sex also meant you can't, you know, fire somebody based on their divergence from like gender norms. So the same kind of, the same thing, it sounds like it applies in the black church, which is, you know, black women did a lot of the groundwork and, you know, queer people were kind of able to use that groundwork as a way to elevate themselves into a comfortable spot in some black churches. Absolutely. And, and so one thing I forgot to, to mention, but you, you've brought it back to me too, is understanding that a lot of this was in response to um, the kind of social, a lot of, a lot of the um, kind of conservative views that you see among the black church, especially in the early 1900s going into the civil rights movement, it was, it was strategy. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but it was strategic, right? And so in order to, um, there was a concern, especially kind of pre-civil rights movement for black people to be accepted by the dominant society. And so right. they wanted to be seen as equals, to be seen as people. And so what, um, there's an author, Kelly Brown Douglas, who is fantastic. She does a lot of work on sexuality in the black church. Um, she argues that um, black people adopted this hyper proper, um, is what she calls it, hyper proper sexual ethic. So they became incredibly conservative around a lot of things, but especially sex, because they wanted to be seen as respectable people who were worthy of being treated equally. And in order to dispel those myths that Black people were hyper-sexualized savages, right? And so that was right. also um, part of the discourse was that although Black people were the ones subjected to um, sexual violence and trauma for hundreds of years, um, white people then depicted black people and said, oh, well, you know, you got to watch out for those black men because they'll, you know, they'll rape your daughters or those black women. Um, they, they're always out here trying to tempt white men and, you know, take them from their wives and things. And right. So like these negative connotations, they wanted to combat that. And they said, no, look, we're respectable. Look at how we dress. We cover ourselves up. We wear, you know, people in those, they wore suits to go everywhere. Men wore suits, women wore the long dresses with the gloves and they were, um, you know, chastity was very, uh, very much promoted. Um, strong household units, male-headed household units, right? Um, and so that's why, that's part of why um, non-heterosexual identities and relationships um, weren't accepted is because it's like, yeah. well, hey, you know, you queer people, y'all are kind of messing up. <laughs> y'all are messing up the movement, right? Like we're right. trying to be seen as these respectable people. And to us, that's not it. And to them, that's not it. And so we need to kind of fit this mold and walk this tight line. I mean, that continued throughout the civil rights movement because unfortunately, the movement for civil rights centered on Black men, but it did, um, it did, start to bring in black women because, you know, if we're quite honest, black women did all the work. Um, and even in the church, um, black women were doing all the work. 
you know, most, most of our churches are, you know, 70, 80% women. Right. <laughs> um, they were doing all the work. They were raising the money. I'm thinking in particular about um, one black denomination, the church of God in Christ, um, because to this day, I think they don't, I think they, now they, they ordain women pastors, but they don't have women bishops. Okay. Um, but for a while, like women, like they, they, you could not preach, you know, you could yeah. speak, um, and then they, they started, you know, letting women be evangelists, but they couldn't be pastors or they couldn't be huh. um, whatever. So like women in that denomination, they created their women's department. And so that's why a lot of black churches have, you know, these women's departments, because women in the church, they wanted to create a space where they could lead. And that was the only space where they could lead, because, yeah. you know, if you take a literal view of the Bible, it says women couldn't have charge over men. But it didn't say that women couldn't have leadership over other women. Right. So it was like, oh, yeah, if y'all want to do that, sure, that's fine. Um, but these women's departments exploded and they grew and they started bringing in a lot of money for these denominations. And so the, the Black church couldn't ignore these Black women anymore right? Um, because they realized they had so much power and they had so much capital, including financial capital, mm -hmm. um, that was necessary, not, for, not just for our churches, but for the movement. And so that's when you kind of, when I, I believe that when our community started to realize the value of Black women, <laughs> um, that's when they were like, okay, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll probably expand this movement to include them too. So um, one thing that stuck out to me is you were talking about how the, the church really needed to set a standard so that they could kind of move away from this depiction as like animalistic sexual creatures or you know however they're depicted at the time was any of that i mean certainly black churches aren't necessarily safe today we know that from like dylan ruth and and things like that was part of that safety was part of that like we don't want our churches to be like torn down or you know, mobbed or whatever by, um, by like predominantly white churches. In terms of as to why they weren't necessarily accepting of of queer uh, people, queer people, yeah, mm. that's something I hadn't really considered. I don't know. I mean that that could have been a concern. I don't know if I've read anything um, explicitly to that. Okay. Um, to that fact in, in all of my research. But that very well could have been a thing, um, but it definitely would have been used against them. And unfortunately, right. um, there we see instances where um, it was used against them. It, we see instances of where um, Black people would use this against others. So I'm thinking in particular of the example of uh, Pastor Adam Clayton Powell and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. So Adam Clayton Powell was a, a legislature from New and, and pastor in New York. Okay. A very, very popular, um, nationally known um, uh, politician in New York. And he, you know, pastored Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is, you know, one of the largest and, you know, historical black churches um, in the US. It's in Harlem. Um, and he was very much involved in the civil rights movement. Um, as many of you may know or may not know, um, Martin Luther King's closest advisor was Bayard Rustin. Um, Bayard Rustin was a gay man and was 
pretty much openly gay. <laughs> Everybody knew Baird Rustin was gay. Um, and that created problems within the movement too, because they were like, all right, you know, we can't really, you know, so they had to, they had to figure out what to do with um, <laughs> Baird sometimes. But um, unfortunately, Adam Clayton Powell, he was incredibly homophobic and he threatened um, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King um, that if he did not drop Baird Rustin from his circle, um, because Baird Rustin did pretty much all of the legwork. Um, Baird Rustin is who taught Martin Luther King the art of nonviolent resistance. King did not learn that on his own. Baird Rustin taught it to him. Um, yeah. Baird Rustin is the one who studied the Gandhian principles and taught it to King. Um, okay. Baird Rustin organized the March on Washington. Um, yeah. um, Ella Baker, who's a black woman, you know, she, they, Baird Rustin and Ella Baker, a black woman, they did most of the work. I'm not saying that, you know, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King didn't do any work, um, sure. most certainly did, but he could not have gotten um, nearly as far as he did without a gay black man and black women. But the short version that I'm, I'm, tr I'm trying to convey here is that um, Adam Clayton Powell up in Harlem um, did not like the fact that um, Baird Rustin was gaining so much popularity um, mm -hmm. because he was gay. And he told King that, hey, you need to drop him from your events um, and if you don't, I'm going to um, tell the media that you all are having a sexual relationship. Um, which was preposterous, right? Like sure. they, they, uh, they were not having a relationship, but, and you know, everybody knew that, but the, th the threat that, you know, that rumor alone would have been so detrimental. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, um, King folded. And they dropped Rustin, and he was essentially um, blackballed from the civil rights movement and civil rights circuit uh, for quite some time. Now they, you know, they brought him back, you know, sometime later. But that kind of goes to show you that, you know, a lot of black religious leaders, the black church, the black community, that like they were very afraid to kind of tackle um, the issue of LGBTQ rights. Um, because they feared that it would take away from um, the movement for racial justice. Yeah, that uh, that is hard to swallow for a couple of reasons. The first one is I often see, and I, I've never put a lot of stock in this, I've, I've often seen um, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's words used to justify homophobia, which you know, I I could imagine that he may have had a slight aversion to it because, you know, I mean, who didn't other than queer people at, at the time? But I, nothing he said seemed blatantly homophobic either. Um, so so to know that somebody who was just helping him out and doing a lot of good work was, you know, let go because of his sexuality is. Yeah, that's depressing. And that's not to say it's a reflection of Martin Luther King. It just seems more like a reflection of, you know, having to do what's necessary to get a message across. I don't think that the world was ready for, a, you know, inclusion of queer people yet, you know, not at that time. So it may have really, it genuinely may have been detrimental to the Black movement. For sure. And it's also um, interesting to um, just to note how his legacy, right? So King's, uh, King's daughter, uh, Bernice King, has been pretty openly homophobic 
Um, and, you know, would say that, you know, she's even gone so far as to say, like, my father would not have stood for gay rights. Um, but on the other hand, um, his wife, Coretta Scott King, has been very supportive of the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And she would say that, hey, my husband would want, you know, so it's just even interesting that even among his own family, you have these different interpretations of, um, well, would King be for LGBTQ rights or would he be against it? Yeah. Um, we'll never know. Sure. Um, okay, so I want to play a, a little, a quick game with you, really quick. Sure. Um, so we've talked a lot about Black women and how much work they've done, both within the church and outside of the church. It is my personal belief that uh, Black women have saved the soul of this country multiple times. So could you give me your, like you know, your number one choice for the Black woman that has saved the soul of this country to the largest degree? Ooh, that is a difficult one. It is. Can, would you like me to give you my answer since, you know, yeah, I can give you some time to think while, while I ramble? Okay, so so first I, I would have said Marsha P. Johnson, um, and that's because she organized the Stonewall riots. Well, she could like co-organized the Stonewall riots that really did kind of beat back the police brutality that was happening toward queer people. But as of right now, and this is maybe a recency bias, but right now I think I'm going to say Stacey Abrams. Mm. I think that her work in, in Georgia and honestly nationally really did do a lot to um, to quell some of the the racial divide, but not in a way that was dismissive of, you know, the needs of the Black community. And it led us to what I would say is a much more stable country right now. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that it's where the work is done, but fortunately we still have Stacey Abrams working on this country. Yeah, I, um, I agree. Um, Stacey Abrams is a rock star. I, I may be biased. I, I absolutely love Ella Josephine Baker, and I've mentioned her um, before. She embodied so, so the thing, so Ella Josephine Baker, she was a, she was an educator, although I don't think she ever actually completed her own education. Okay. So she, because the, because of the deplorable um, conditions of Black schools, she created her own. Um, and so she, um, I don't know if um, you are familiar with Freedom Summer. I'm not. Or um, our listeners may not be familiar with Freedom Summer. So Freedom Summer um, started in, oh gosh, I feel bad. I should know this. I used to be a, um, a trainer for <laughs> these programs that still go on today. Um, it was in 19... 64, I believe. Don't, you know, it was around that time. Mm -hmm. And it was in, it was developed in response to voter suppression because in order to, although Black people had gained the right to vote, they placed all these, you know, literacy tests and things right. in the way that even the white people couldn't pass them, right? right? I mean, they didn't have to take them, but they couldn't, like, no one could pass these tests. I mean, if you, you can Google them today and look at them and they're just like, this is ridiculous. And so I, I'm sorry, may I jump in? Because I, I do have something very interesting to add to this. Sure. I'm taking election law right now. 
And one of the things that we learned is for some, for some people, a lot of white people, the literacy test was write your name on this document. And for, um, for black men, it was like, you have to perfectly recite the code, like from the statute as to why you're allowed to vote. Yeah. Some of them were literally given a jar of jelly beans since they had to say how many jelly beans to the exact number were in the jar so that they could vote. Yeah. Sorry. I just, I wanted to add just a little bit of color to that because like I learned about this recently and it was infuriating. Absolutely. So, so please continue. Yeah. So you're right. All of these barriers existed. Um, so you, you combine that, the voter suppression, deplorable schooling conditions, people are hungry. Um, and so Freedom Summer came about. You have um, students from all over the country came down to the South um, for this summer program. And it was eight weeks and people learned how to read. Um, so you had, uh, it was basically, it was mostly kind of based on literacy, but people learned how to read. People learned other um, skills that were necessary. Um, they learned about civics. Um, there was food. Um, and so even to this day, it's, it's been taken over by the Children's Defense Fund because they offer the Freedom um, School program every summer now. Um, and the program is named in honor of Ella Baker, who um, was part of the brainchild for this. And so um, in addition to that kind of education, because she believed that children um, weren't just the future, children were the present. And so she was also involved with organizing children to be part of, so you have the Children's March, right? So you have, um, you know, children actively participating in the civil rights movement. Um, and, you know, she worked alongside the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin um, and the um, S SCLC, um, the Student Leadership, wait, SC, uh, oh gosh, I know SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Southern something Leadership Council, I should know these acronyms, but all of the various, <laughs> all of the Honestly, various. Honestly, you probably could have made something up and I, I bet it would have gone over people's head. Yeah. Oh yeah. One of my listeners probably would have caught it though. Uh, <laughs> sure. um, but yes, all of these organizations, you know, she was very much involved in, especially organizing the children. And I think that's so admirable um, yeah. for her to do, to say that um, children aren't just the future. Children they have a voice now. And that's something that I carry with me um, now too, because that comes straight out of the black womanist, black feminist tradition, mm -hmm. that all people have a voice. All people have something to contribute, no matter who you are, yeah. no matter you know how much or how little education you have, how much or how little money you have, um, you're valuable and you have something important to contribute. Yeah, so, okay. I. Um... I have a, a series of questions that I want to ask you that um, are probably going to be a little bit more, well, a little bit less nuanced than the ones that you're answering now. Um, but before we get to that, you mentioned um, the the uh, president, or you met, pre, for, I'm sorry, former President Barack Obama. Could Do you re recall what you were going to say in relation to him? Absolutely. So... Um, as we've talked about throughout this entire time, I kind of mentioned that before the kind of 1980s, the black church was largely mm, tolerant of queer people. Um, don't ask, don't tell. If you don't bring it up, we won't bring it up. But then became kind of overtly homophobic 
in the late 80s and 90s with the rise of the HIV AIDS epidemic and the push for gay rights. Well, then we fast forward a bit to uh, former President Barack Obama, who shocked the entire Black community when he came out in support of um, LGBTQ rights and in particular gay marriage. Um, that threw a wrench in things for the Black community because, mm -hmm. you know, Black folks were like, wait, well, what? <laughs> yeah. What? So what do we, you know, and so you had some people who were very vocally opposed to it. And there's like, oh, we're so disappointed in President Obama. Um, but for a lot of folks, it was, it, it forced people to think. Yeah. Um, to say like, and, it, and it's not because, and I, and, I, and I don't mean to depict um, President Obama as being like the Messiah of Black people. And so what he says kind of right. goes, but to have this Black man who was an inspiration and is an inspiration to so many Black people was considered a leader um, among um, the Black community to kind of make this step. It did force a conversation and it forced people to think, to say, okay, well, wait, um, we maybe we need to re rethink this. And if you look at the statistics, since 2000, you know, after 2008, after 2012, um, the number of um, Black, the, the um, kind of um, acceptance of LGBTQ people among Black people increased yeah. um, during the Obama presidency and in the years since. But what you do see in that time period is that although Black people were still um, not in favor of non-heterosexual relationships, they were in favor of their civil liberties. And so yeah. then you start to see this distinction of, well, I may not agree with your quote unquote lifestyle, right. um, but I do need to support your civil rights because as, and, and that the narrative starts to shift, you know, because as black people, we know what it's like to have our civil liberties violated. And so even if we disagree with, how people live these, you know, folks live their lives, um, we need to stand up for their civil liberties. And so you, that has now been kind of the, I would argue that's been the discourse in recent years of, well, I may not agree with gay marriage, but I'll support your right to do it. Yeah. Um, now, you know, now black churches will be very clear in saying like, while I may, while I support your right to do it, I support your right to do it elsewhere because you're not going right. to get married here. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not performing your ceremony. You can go ahead down to the courthouse, go out to the park, whatever, uh, have a nice outdoor wedding, but we're not doing it over here, but go for it. Yeah. So yeah, I think that that's so interesting because, so, you know, if we go back to, um, to, to the first election, um, it was really an election between Obama and Hillary, even though there was a Republican candidate, but McCain. Yeah, just, who was that? I don't even remember. I'm kidding. <laughs> the only reason I know it was McCain is because his concession speech was actually really wonderful. Um, yeah. But uh, but anyway, so just before this, we have President Bush, who, although I'm told he gives wonderful hugs, was kind of a disaster as a president. Um, not very articulate, not very, it, he just didn't sound or come off as particularly intelligent. Um, my SMU friends are going to kill me whenever they hear me say this, but, <laughs> uh, but that's just kind of the case. And then Obama comes along and just like adds this revitalized sense of dignity to the office. And, and initially he was, and correct me if I'm wrong, initially he was not pro-gay marriage. Um, it wasn't really until 
the Supreme Court started to wrestle with whether they were going to accept uh, Obergefell, uh, grant certiorari to, to hear that case, mm-hmm. that Obama was like, hey, you know what, actually, I do mm-hmm. support gay marriage. And so, so just this, all of this is happening in, and you're right, as soon as, you know, more progressive, um, well, I, I should just say more progressive people started to say like, well, we really love Obama. So maybe I should actually think about this. It kind of avalanched from there. And so even though, like you said, uh, the black community is not a monolith and and he was not their messiah, um, it it was still just like this huge, huge endorsement for, for queer people. And even though he didn't technically have anything to do with us getting our rights, mm-hmm. I think it's important to say that he was really influential in the social dynamic of it. Absolutely. Um, I I personally don't know if, um, it definitely forced the conversation. I mean, right. it, it in, in whatever way too, right? Like, so like, in, you know, in the wake of either, you know, in the wake of both Obama's kind of public endorsement of gay marriage and in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling, um, you see for many Black churches and denominations for the first time them ever making statements about queer people. Yeah. Um, because by and large, they just they just didn't. They just didn't talk about it. It's just, you know, or, you know, if they were overtly homophobic, they, you know, kind of preached message for, messages from the pulpit. Um, but for the first time, you're seeing official documents from Black yeah. denominations and, and they're writing it in their policy that we will not conduct same-sex marriages or um, we affirm your right to get married, but you can't do it here. And it it really becomes part of the discourse now. Yeah. I will say um, Obama did almost lose my vote. Um, I don't know if you recall this, the biggest scandal of the Obama presidency, he wore a tan suit. A tan suit. That tan suit. (laughs) What was he thinking? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know what's so funny is like, Every president that's worn a tan suit, including Bush, Bush wore a tan suit at least once. Uh, they look great in it, and Obama looked phenomenal. I was like, no, I'd vote for that guy a third term. Yeah, they, they um, couldn't hand they couldn't handle all that all that freshness, all that drip. <laughs> all that, he was he was black. Um, so, okay, I want to ask you a series of questions now that um, just I think are a little bit more general, but you, I want you to feel free to just kind of. Sh- express where intersectionality plays a part in in these questions sure um what what does it mean to be an ally Mm. good question i don't know if i know the answer to that Mm -hmm. (laughs) i and and you may know this the term ally is kind of contested in a lot of circles um, you know, folks say, you know, don't be an ally, be a co-conspirator or be mm-hmm. a, you know, whatever. I personally prefer advocacy over allyship. Okay. Um, I don't know. To me, being an ally means I'm here with you, um, which is fine. You know, right. that's great. Um, but sometimes I, I feel like that's um, oftentimes not enough. Like I need, mm-hmm. you know, um, I need you to advocate for me or like, you know, I try to advocate for people like, yes, I can be with you, but I'm also going to um, try to make sure that conditions change such that you aren't where you are that, you know, where I'm kind of being with you. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it does, um, but I, I wanted to ask you a follow-up. Um, how old were you whenever you came out? I was 20, uh, 25-ish. I'm a little shocked to hear that you're older than 25, but okay. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> so, um, prior to coming out, did you have a, a strong sense of internalized homophobia? Were you, mm. um, or were you more accepting of, of gay people? Oh yeah, that, that was a journey. Um, I don't think I was ever, and I hope I wasn't, and I was having this conversation the other day with someone, um, I don't think I was ever overtly homophobic um I did have some internalized homophobia to the sense to where I felt like um by being queer I was doing something wrong in that um I wasn't pleasing God and I was letting people down and I was you know so I, I it really was internalized for me but the internalized homophobia for me didn't become externalized. Um, I'm grateful to say that I have never preached a homophobic sermon in all of my years of ministry. Yeah. Um, at least I don't think I have. Um, but I know like so many of so many other people who are, you know, same gender loving or on the DL or what have you, who will get up in the pulpit and preach these homophobic sermons. And I'm just like, really, fam? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't Ouch. think I ever did. I don't. I don't think I ever did that. But I definitely wrestled with these things on um, for myself. Yeah. So, to clarify for anybody that may not fully understand what we're talking about here, whenever we say internalized homophobia, or for me, internalized transphobia, what we mean is there's like this pervasive nature of anti-transness or anti-gayness uh, all around us. I mean, just socially, we grow up thinking like you know when when we were growing up gay just meant kind of bad or stupid or whatever, you know, that's gay was a very common thing. So all of all of these social aspects kind of come together and then we internalize it and then we have to kind of wrestle with why am I feeling this way? Like why do I want to be a girl? Girls are bad, you know, and and people that want to be girls are bad. So mm -hmm. that's that's a very like you know way person way of saying like the definition of internalized homophobia homophobia or internalized transphobia um i'll say just to to add on to to what you already said luther one of the things that i think makes the best i would say that this falls under ally i don't think that this is necessarily advocacy um and it's certainly not all that we need but there in my opinion there are three words that can just kind of change the world. If, mm. if every person that was willing to do, like if every person that called themselves an ally or said they were supportive of queer people, black people, women, whatever or all of these groups, whenever you're, you hear somebody talking badly about them, whenever you see somebody writing something negative, just respond with, that's not acceptable. Um, and mm -hmm. as little as that is, if somebody realizes that they're going to get called out every single time they say something that is, it's racist or it's homophobic, 
they start to question a lot of the times that they're going to say something racist or homophobic. Mm-hmm. Now, again, that's not nearly enough. We obviously need people that influence policy, influence legislation. We need people in, like Barack Obama to be, you know, symbols of of kind of hope for for different communities. But I would just recommend to anybody who's looking to think like, how can I be a better ally? Tell people when they're doing something that's unacceptable. Yeah. And all the time. Do it all the time. Yes. All the time. <laughs> yes. Every single time. They get um, no breaks. Yes. yes. Um, okay. So this can, uh, feel free to answer this from the perspective of the black church or from churches generally. What obligation does a church have to its queer congregants in your mind? the same um the same if not more responsibilities it has to everyone else um i'll share a quick story when i came out um in the church that i was serving at this was one of the things that i brought up to um the senior pastor and i said this this was after you know months of kind of going back and forth and people are mad that you're you know queer and this and that I mean it was it was a lot I I could I could talk we'll have to like uh chat after this podcast and I can give you that whole rundown but um but one of the things that I said was over the past couple of months you all have not treated me as a member of this community like you've treated me as a problem that needed to be solved um no one and I said this I was like not one person um here has asked me how I was doing like no one stopped to think, hey, this 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 guy might be going through. Like I was like, I, you know, at that time I had been disowned by my father. Um, I had, you know, lost all contact with my mother. Um, I was part of a um I was part of a band that was touring at the time and we had just released a new album. And so I wasn't sure how that might be impacted, what the record label was going to say. Um, there was just a whole lot going on. And this was another one of those things that was going on. And, you know, the pastor, none of the, none of the pastors, no one stopped to say, hey, how are you doing? How are you faring? Are you okay? Um, and I brought that up to him. And I won't say on this recording what his response was. Um, but basically, it was just like, that's not my problem. Um, and so it became clear to me that as a queer person, I did not have the same, um, they did not speak. It, it seemed to me that they did not have the same or they didn't feel like they had the same responsibility to me as any other person in the community. And I would say start there. Like, you know, you don't even have to, I mean, it's great that churches celebrate Pride Month and do all these other things, but at the very least, just treat us like any other people in the church, you know, yeah. check on us. Even if you aren't to this place where you're affirming, check on us, right? If, if a, a queer person, a queer young person in your church um, gets kicked out by their parents or disowned or, or what have you, check on them. It, you know, not in the way of, well, you, this, is pro- this is why you need to stop being gay. Like, no, actually have care and concern for that person. That's what Jesus did, right? right. Um, time and time again, Jesus had con- care and concern for people. Then he kind of dealt with the spiritual stuff. But yeah. by first it was, oh, wow, you you can't walk right now and, and you would like to walk. So let's see if we can make that happen. Hey, you don't have food and you need food. So let's maybe do that. Hey, you're sick. 
and you spend all your money on doctors. Let's see if we can do something about that. And then we get to the, okay, well, go your way and sin no more. Oh, well, you know, you should probably, um, you know, stop sinning. And, you know, so then we kind of get to that other stuff. But first, Jesus meets people and he has care and concern for them as human beings. Yeah. That was, you know, I I was going to add on to some of the things that you were saying, but that was so well said and so well articulated that I just think I'm going to move on to the next question. Um, oh, okay, yes. You recently spoke at, I believe it was called a TEDx. Um, yes. Uh, I don't know, would it be called a ceremony? I guess usually a TED talk is, is somewhat of a ceremony, but, um, and that was that was through Ohio State, which is where you're going. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that experience like? Wow. Probably the most um, anxiety-inducing but exciting experiences of my life. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And I'm, you know, incredibly honored to be able to give a TEDx talk. Um, but um, it was great. It was, you know, I, I had a lot of, I was nervous. People say, oh, you look so great on camera. And you look, look so calm. Like you knew what you were talking about. I was like, yeah, I was a wreck. <laughs> um, but it was great. And in particular too, you know, talking about, I, I spoke about white supremacy um, and the intersectionality of white supremacy, right? So I said mm -hmm. um, in that talk that white supremacy um, is the root of pretty much most, if not all of our social ills in this country. Um, in connecting it to all of these various identities. And, you know, I wasn't sure how that was going to be received <laughs> um, right. by anybody, too, because I, I pretty much, um, I called everybody in to conversation. Um, white folks, POC, um, folks of varying a bit, like, this is all of our work, and we all need to kind of check ourselves in a sense yeah. and, and figure out, okay, where are we in this, this system? Because we are all socialized to buy into the system of white supremacy. We all have a hand in perpetuating it. Um, and that, that can be uncomfortable for some folks, but we all have a hand in perpetuating white supremacy. And so we need to figure out where we are in this, uh, which, which, kind of we, which kind of cog in this wheel we're occupying and figure out how we can um, um, take that cog out and start to dismantle this system. Yeah, um, you know, this, one of the things that happened to me regularly as a child, um, I was a little bit darker because I was out in the sun all the time. Um, and like I said, I'm Native American. So whenever I was out in the sun, I would brown up quite a bit. Um, but during the winter, just whenever I wasn't going outside quite a bit, um, I would lose a lot of that. And more or less look white. I would be white passing is what a lot of people would call it. And, you know, people would come up to me and I would speak to them and I would say something. And because, I guess because I could put a few sentences together, they would often say, oh, you're white. And I didn't realize the significance of that mentality until I was an adult. And looking back, I'm like, I just you know, I just let them think that being able to speak is a white thing. And so I just, you know, a lot of times people hear white supremacy and and they they think, well, yeah, I mean, somebody that's in a KKK hood and burning a cross and things like that. Yes, obviously that's white supremacy, but 
there are a lot of things that we can affect on a very small scale that have really big influences because they guarantee if you tell somebody like, you know, Hispanic people can also speak or black people can put together sentences also, they're going to be like, oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. What I just said was really racist. <laughs> so, so anyway, that was just kind of my way of one thing that I have worked on constantly is putting an end to that way of thinking and it is pervasive especially for um hispanic people that are kind of like fair-skinned um okay so i apologize i just got another question um okay so um the question is um, what what is hopeful for queer people in black churches right now? What is hopeful? I so for queer people in black churches, I think that I, what's hopeful for me is that conversations are being had. Um, there are a number of things that have happened and are happening that are forcing people to have conversations. Um, so one of those things is um, queer Black people are more visible and more, yeah. you know, out and loud and kind of saying like, hey, we're here, you kind of have to deal with this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am seeing more Black clergy um, who are more progressive in their thought, um, or at least more open-minded to looking at things in different ways, um, particularly when it comes to scripture um, and, you know, what they know about um, sexuality and gender. I'm seeing that. I'm, I'm seeing, you know, these things are, are starting to change in conversations. Conversations are being had. Um, even, I don't know if you saw the... Um, the documentary series that uh, Henry Louis Gates just did recently on the Black Church. Um, it was mm -hmm. a PBS special. Um, it's great. I think it's still up. I highly okay. recommend it to anyone who, who's watching. Um, but yes, the Black Church, it's two um, segments. Um, but the second segment in particular deals with sexuality in the Black Church. And you have all of these. Um, so, you know, you have all these people who are talking about it in this documentary. And it was, you know, viewed by um, a lot of people. Um, and it sparked, I saw it spark conversations, you know, all throughout my social media and in other circles, um, which is great. Now, my concern is that these conversations aren't happening in Black churches. <laughs> they're happening everywhere but Black churches. They're happening on social media. Um, right. They're happening at these uh, conferences. They're happening at um, leadership conferences for Black clergy. Um, and all of those things are great. I'm glad the conversations are being had. What I'm looking forward to is when um, Black leaders, Black church leaders, bring those conversations to their actual congregations. Um, so many Black pastors and clergy are, you know, they, they feel that their churches aren't ready, their congregations aren't ready to have these conversations. Yeah. I personally think that's hogwash. Um, I think it's them who aren't ready to have these conversations. Mm -hmm. um, because from what I'm seeing, and this is actually part of my research to um, be on the lookout for an article that'll be coming out <laughs> about that. But okay. from what I'm seeing is that Black churchgoers, Black parishioners are wanting to have these conversations. Um, and I think 
honestly, they're just waiting on us black leaders to start to, to forge that conversation and create that space. So I'll, I'll add on to this. One thing that I am hopeful of um, for queer people in churches generally is Gen Z. I know a lot of people give hate to Gen Z because of TikTok, but Gen Z does not put up with anything from anybody, and it's great. It is so refreshing um, to see a bunch of, you know, offsprings of tired, annoyed, frustrated millennials just take it to the next level, <laughs> and every time they hear something racist, just pull out their phone and start making fun of racist people. It just, it, it gives me a lot of hope. So I, I think, you know, within the next couple generations, we're going to start seeing a pretty significant change in, in the dynamics of, you know, who isn't, is not allowed in, in a church. Absolutely. Um, okay. Did I, do I understand correctly that you have written children's books? Yeah. So I write, um, religious educational material for children. Um, so I was part of a team that um, wrote a children's Bible. Uh, oh, okay. And I also write um, curriculum for uh, mostly children. Yeah, I've, I've done some adult stuff too, but mostly children. <laughs> okay. And um, in this in this work, do you do you talk about intersectionality and the things that you're studying now? Yeah, so um, I definitely bring in a lot of um, social issues into my curriculum, and I'm, yeah. I'm grateful for the the companies that I get to write for, and they give me a, a good bit of latitude. And sometimes it's, you know, I think one of the segments I wrote recently was about um, diversity, and it was it was a challenging one to write because I had to go there. And we talked about mm -hmm. some very difficult uh, passages in the Bible, such as the one that says women aren't allowed to speak, right? right. <laughs> I was like, how can I make a children's lesson out of this? Yeah. Um, that one was a, an incredibly difficult one to do. Um, but no, I, I appreciate the ability to bring in those things. I'll bring up um, issues of immigration and sexism and transphobia and racism and ableism. Like I bring these into um, into the curricula that I write. Great. And are these books that would be like, or or writings that would be available to people? Like, can they purchase them to, to read it on their own? For sure, yeah. Um, yeah, the curriculum, uh, the curriculum guides are, you know, geared toward, you know, um, actually I guess they're geared to reading. I mean, we, I guess the target market for the publisher is, churches to use for like their Sunday schools okay. but um, a lot of them are designed to be kind of like for total life so church and home um, okay. so uh, John Westminster Knox is the publisher um, if you want to check out if anyone wants to check out um, some of those resources the uh, story bible was growing in God's love Okay. Um, is the name of the children's Bible. I highly recommend it. If you have young people in your life, kids, grandkids, kids that you know, um, I'm not just saying this because I helped write it, but it really is um, a great story Bible. Um, the illustrations were, all of the illustrators were very um, cognizant of um, being inclusive in, in the, the drawings and depictions and um, along lines of race, ethnicity, and gender. 
Um, so, you know, stories that you might traditionally think of, oh, this is a boy character. No, we put we put a little girl in there. Um, yeah. And so to show that, no, like these things apply across the board. Um, and, yeah. you know, we the the main point with that Bible was we don't want children to learn things as kids that they'll have to unlearn as adults because right. we're too uncomfortable talking to kids about certain things. Absolutely. Great. Um, Luther, it has been so much fun. You've taught me so much and I really appreciate it. Um, is there any social media events or websites that you want to plug where people can um, get more of your um, teachings or, or speeches? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so folks can feel free to connect with me on social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, at Luther Young um, is my handle on most platforms. Um, on Facebook, you can find me Luther Young Jr., my full name, um, or my website, lutheryoung.com. Um, so it's pretty made it really cool. easy for them. <laughs> yes, that was the goal. <laughs> I'm impressed. Usually it's like something, something, one, two, seven, underscore, nine, you know. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, I just learned you can't use underscores in email addresses anymore. Really? Yeah, I don't know when that happened. I was what I was trying I to help a friend, it? like, you know, think of a, a name for their email address because they had to get rid of their old one. And huh. they were like, oh, no, you can't use underscores anymore. My whole life was underscores for a, for a while. I feel um, old now. <laughs> I also feel old now. <laughs> well, uh, like I said, Luther, it's been so much fun. And I really hope that you'll you'll come back on the podcast and we can talk. Uh, I'm sure that there are a million more things we can talk about when it comes to intersectionality. Um, sure. I would love to give your your opinion on just like current events and, and things that are going to happen, especially, you know, next year whenever we start coming up to to midterms and and things like that so i i hope that you'll come back on absolutely okay have a wonderful day and i will talk to you later thanks see you